You are listening to episode 61 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where Daredevil quits. Then he gets attacked by a killer robot hiding in his closet. You know, that whole thing. Hello and welcome to the 61st episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. Here on Dave's Daredevil Podcast, what I do is read, enjoy, and talk about comics featuring Marvel's Man Without Fear and Netflix superstar, Daredevil. And last week in all my reverie, I forgot to talk about the massive success of the first season of Marvel's Daredevil on Netflix. It is now the most streamed original program on Netflix, which is huge. Within two weeks, it was renewed for season two, which is going to be next year, and I'm already psyched about that. And to give you an idea of just how broad the appeal is for this show, my father-in-law, my brother-in-law, and sister-in-law, separately, mind you, could not stop binge-watching it and raved about it. To which I thought, well, welcome to my world. So, jumping into our first email, we have an email from Eric Jones, who was one of the winners of the Daredevil 101 digital comic giveaway. And Eric's subject line is very informative. Eric writes, Good day, Dave. I found your podcast and began listening in preparation for the Daredevil Netflix series. My first exposure to Daredevil was through the movie because I wasn't reading comics as often as I do now. You sure know your stuff and that's why you are now part of my regular listening rotation. You bring so much information to the character and his stories that even though I have not read a lot of Daredevil, you make it easy for a first-timer to access. I also wanted to ask if it's alright, how do you work your podcast as just a single-man show? I'm planning on starting one myself. I don't really have anyone as far as co-hosts or anything. and was just wondering how you keep things engaging as the solo voice. Thank you, Eric Jones. First of all, thank you, Eric, for that email. I'm glad that you mentioned it makes it accessible to other people. That's one of the main goals uh, every time I approach an episode is to make sure even the layman could come in and, you know, maybe as a side effect, pique their interest in the character. But more to your, your question at the end as far as how I keep things engaging as a solo voice. I don't want to sound pretentious, so what I'm going to do is tell you what I wish I could have told myself five years ago when I first started in podcasting. First of all, most importantly, almost everything can be edited. So as you're recording, don't stress out. Just relax, talk to the microphone as if it's a friend of yours, and remember that it's one control X away from being completely erased. That's key. Secondly, overnote. Usually uh, every week I do more notes than necessary, just to make sure I have plenty of content to talk about. And then in the editing process, I pull out the notes that really just, they didn't fly, they didn't work, what have you. And thirdly, as far as engaging, my answer to that would be engage yourself. And by that I mean, choose topics that excite you, genuinely excite you, or at least tangentially involved with something that excites you. Otherwise, it's just going to feel like a chore. And that's not to say, you know, if you choose a topic such as Daredevil, there's not going to be an issue that's not that great. Choose a way to approach it where you're still engaged. If you don't like the issue, tear it apart and have fun with that. That's the main thing. Everything can be edited, come in overprepared, and never cover something you just don't give a crap about. I'd like to say it's very much that easy, but if you stick to those three core concepts, everything else kind of falls in line with one of them. 
Next up is from another podcaster, Mr. Brad Dade. His email has a subject line of simply, thanks. Brad writes, hi Dave. First, thank you for playing our podcast promo for The Hornet's Nest. I'm sure it will soon bring in huge money that make podcasters like yourself millionaires. About Daredevil and the current team. For me, the sign of a great creative team is when, in concept, I should hate this version of a character that I love. Yet, they convince me otherwise. For example, I like my Daredevil more dark, street-level, a la Miller or Bendis. Also, I was not a big fan of Wade officially outing Daredevil's secret identity. I thought Bendis and later Brubaker had done a great job of walking that line without fully crossing it. But here's the thing. I love this run by Wade and Samney. They turned me around with one simple thing. This book is fun. The characters have great chemistry. They gel well. Another thing I appreciate is the pace of each issue feels old school and not decompressed. Yes, there are plot points that carry from issue to issue, but there is enough in the individual issues that I feel I'm getting enough bang for my buck. Not something I can say I get often with modern comics. Now I'm sounding like a cranky old comic fan, so I'll leave you now while I go yell at these kids to get off my lawn. Cheers, Brad. And first of all, Brad, it's my pleasure to play the podcast promo for The Hornet's Nest. Secondly, I don't have a lot to add to what you said about the book. That tends to be where I lean, but some of the more recent issues have me waffling a bit on that. I'm not sure how I feel about some of the more recent developments, especially in Daredevil's costume. But generally, it's hard for me to deny that, yeah, this book is fun and that goes a long way for me. And that kind of segues perfectly into my next email from Sarah DeLion. Subject line is simple point to make, really. Sarah writes, so I've been a fangirl of Daredevil for many years, and to be perfectly honest, I think you are way too nice to Mark Wade's run. Personally, I hate almost everything he has done with the character and think that his lighter take, very much the opposite of the TV show, has helped to slowly destroy the character. I'll take anything from Miller, obviously he's a god, and Nascenti or Ed Brubaker. Everything that Wade has done to the character has been for the worse in my opinion, and I don't think you look at his comics critically enough. The spectacular TV show that just came just goes to highlight this even further. So very much the opposite end of the spectrum from Brad's email, and that's what I like is seeing opinions that are different. As far as being critical and not being critical enough to the book, I'll be honest with you, the only thing I can bring to the table when doing this show is my take on it. So as I mentioned when talking about Brad's email, if a book is fun and I'm entertained, I'm engaged, I tend to look at it more positively because that's the reason I put my money down. So if I'm not critical enough, I will completely cop to that and I cannot completely apologize for that because that's exactly what I come to the show to do, which is read, enjoy, and talk about Daredevil comics. Some of the developments in the more recent Daredevil issues have me waffling a bit. Having said that, I have felt in the past that the character is being destroyed, so I know that feeling of panic and that feeling of dismay you're going through. The first time was with Fall from Grace, when we saw things go to a place where I just didn't see how they could put the pieces back together again. The second time was Shadowland, where, again, it felt like they can't get the proverbial toothpaste back in the tube. Sure, what Wade is doing affects the character. It takes away from what many feel is the core of the character, and I get that. I can't deny your point that this dark, gritty series comes out, wows everybody, but if you go pick up the latest issue of Daredevil, you're looking at something on the opposite end of the spectrum. That's poor timing on Marvel's part. I will not deny that. I cannot disagree with that. However, a couple of weeks ago as I record this, we had the revelation of Daredevil's post-Secret Wars costume, which sure enough has quite a bit of similarity to the Netflix series. So for you, Sarah, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. This is a character that has been going in perpetuity since before I was born and will likely 
in all reality be going long after I leave this Earth. It's a character that simply cannot be destroyed because it can always be rebooted. This is a strong enough character to hold his own. Basically, you're going through a period where your character doesn't represent what you want, and I get that. I get that with Superman currently, and Marvel's kind of squeezing me out via Secret Wars. So I'm extremely glad you dropped this email, and my biggest piece of advice is just wait. In a few months, you're going to have a Daredevil that represents more of what we saw in the Netflix series. But that wraps us up for email this week. I want to thank Sarah and Brad for dropping me a line, as well as Eric. And after this promo for Radio vs. the Martians, we will dive into the late 60s once again and witness the beginning of the end for Stan Lee's run on Daredevil. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And we want to ask you an important question. Are you sick and tired of other panel discussion shows wasting your time droning on and on about foreign policy, economics, and human rights? Or do you want to hear conversations about things that actually matter? We host a podcast called Radio vs. the Martians. Every month we gather a panel of our nation's finest minds and plunge a rusty prison shank into the heart of tough questions that have an impact on the lives of real people like you. Like, are drivers required to pull over for the Ghostbusters? Is the United Federation of Planets actually an oppressive dictatorship run by guidance counselors? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger secretly a genius? And are we being mean when we laugh at movies that are so bad they're good? So write your congressman and let them know that Radio vs. the Martians is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on RadioVsTheMartians.com. And we have returned to jump into Daredevil number 49. Now... Normally, I would kind of put the connective tissue here to kind of take us from where we left off last week to the issue we're covering. I'm going to skip that just for the moment. I'm going to come to it in a minute because I think that would spoil some of the surprise, really. So Daredevil 49, cover dated February 1969, has a cover. And this cover is a multi-panel design showing the progression of a fight. And this fight is between Daredevil and his big green robotic foe. And it shows Daredevil swinging towards his foe in the first panel, he's grappling with him in the second, and then he's laying defeated in the third, with the bad guy walking away with a piece of Daredevil's costume in his hand. It's a, just a bunch of images, and I don't think it works. Each image is fine on its own and would kind of be a serviceable cover, really. But it kind of makes just a huge mess when you put these all together. There's too much work to take this cover in. The cover shouldn't be a story in itself, per se. I mean, it should be a glance. Something enticing, something that tells you what's inside, but it shouldn't be a sequential story all on its own. The story inside is called Daredevil Drops Out. Written by Stan Lee, with pencils by Gene Colan, inks by George Klein, and lettered by Artie Simic. It is, of course, reprinted in Essential Daredevil Volume 3, as well as Marvel Masterworks Volume 10, which is Daredevil Volume 5. Digitally, it's exclusively available on Marvel Unlimited Subscription Service. It's not available for sale as of the time of this recording. So I'm going to jump right into Daredevil Drops Out. Matt Murdock returns home to his brownstone, feeling angry, dejected, and just ready to quit being Daredevil. Because of his superhero identity, he is on the outs with both Karen and Foggy, and it's time for Matt to give up his gig as the man without fear. But as Matt opens a closet, a tall, imposing purple robot leaps out at him and attacks him. Matt and the robot fight, tearing up the brownstone around them, and even though Matt holds his own, the robot gets the upper hand. Matt is knocked unconscious, and his robotic foe begins to walk away with the limp body of our hero under his arm to take back to his master. Okay, I'm going to stop there with the surprise out of the bag. That's right, giant purple robots. But let me start with some more specific notes. First of all, we open to page one, and we basically get a four-panel sequence. Now, three of them are actually story sequence. One is more symbolic. The symbolic one shows Daredevil's costume being cast in a corner. The title text of Daredevil Drops Out follows what would be the curve of the costume if it was being thrown. 
The other three panels, well, first one's a doorknob, second one is Matt opening the doorknob, third is Matt coming through the door. It's not exactly suspenseful, but it is nice to look at, and it's odd to say this, but Matt's face, it looks like a Kurt Swan Superman face. I mentioned this attention to doorknobs because the great legend that Stan Lee likes to talk about when he's doing tours in regards to Gene Colan is that the man spent who knows how many times doing a full-page splash of a doorknob. Now, I think the actual tale itself is somewhat apocryphal, somewhat enhanced by Stan's prowess of telling a story over something minute, but at the same time, there is something to the way Colan worked and the level of detail he brought to his surroundings. And I think pages like this one may have been the type of page that actually inspired that story before Stan expanded it, enhanced it, and made it something that probably wasn't. Now, back in the day, before comics were written for the trade, there was a mentality that any comic could be somebody's first. If that's the case, this is probably not the first book you want to pick up. It's your first issue and Daredevil's quitting on the first page. It's almost like a meme. Decides to read Daredevil, Daredevil quits. I see Matt's frustration, and I've said this before, but I'm going to recap it just a little bit here since it's pertinent. Matt could quit being Daredevil. Matt isn't on a payroll or a mission of vengeance or, like Spider-Man, a mission of guilt and responsibility. In fact, the ideal ending for Daredevil's saga would be a happy one where he takes off the costume, moves on, and somebody else takes up the identity. Matt doesn't have the same obligation to Daredevil that Batman would to his crusade or Superman to his responsibility of power, even though the power versus responsibility is more verbally Spider-Man shtick. In one sense, Daredevil's not necessarily something Matt would have to have to function. But I also bring it up because of Spider-Man. In Amazing Spider-Man number 50, which was just not that far back before this one, July 1967, Peter Parker also gets to this same point. And it would not be human of these characters to not get sick of the sacrifices they have to make to be a hero. Like Daredevil, Spider-Man's not getting paid, he's more motivated by the death of Uncle Ben and wanting to prevent that and realizing, well, I've got these superpowers, I need to use them to a greater good. And this opening really smacks a little bit too much of that Amazing Spider-Man number 50, which was a spectacular issue, no pun intended there, but it seems like Stan is going back to his old toolbox a little bit too much. I know Stan was writing the lion's share of Marvel's output, but at the same time, when you start repeating yourself, it may be time to move on, which is kind of appropriate here. And you'll see why more or less next week. And there's a huge part of me that wants to make fun of the 60s fashions. Matt is in this odd turtleneck and purple what looks to be corduroy jacket. It's not exactly attractive. However, I can't really laugh at it because Colin manages to bring the fashions to life. Yes, it's tacky. That's the, what the 60s were to some extent, but at the same time, to have it accurately presented here, right down to the texture, is something pretty, pretty special. And Colin's detail is astounding as Matt casually walks through a very detailed apartment with realistic furniture, sculptures, light fixtures. It seems like Colin totally, totally amped up everything in this issue. It's very vivid. I don't know if I would use the term high definition, I don't know why that comes to mind, but it's sort of a, that same idea. You see details that you wouldn't see in other comics. Now to kind of come back to Matt quitting, what we're dealing with here, what Matt is looking at is his own ego. And yes, he has one. He almost has to have one. Because ego is the extension of confidence. It's the exponential expanding of confidence to the point of overconfidence. If Matt didn't have confidence, he could not be Daredevil, period because he has to rely on his abilities, which takes a great degree of confidence to say, yes, I can run around like a superhero, despite the fact that I can't see, because I have this in my background. Without confidence, Matt just wouldn't be able to put on the costume and leap from rooftop to rooftop. So while there's a reliance on that confidence, the ego comes from him getting lost in the praise. 
and the people looking at him as a superhero, which of course, yeah, it's not a bad thing. Bask in what you have if you're somewhat successful and people appreciate that. But Matt, being a human character, can have that turn inward and kind of become a, an Achilles heel of sorts. And we're seeing that here and Matt recognizing that, that, you know, I was really cocky to really think I could keep doing this and live a normal life. I can't do that anymore. I was really conceited to think that just being Matt Murdock wasn't enough. I mean, we are talking about a man who is a successful lawyer, as we can see by the, the sheer amount of furnishings in his brownstone. So to fill in the gap here as far as what's going on and why Matt is on the outs with Karen and Foggy, when last we checked in, Karen had left for a little while. Well, she briefly returned as Foggy was just about to win his run for DA. Hooray, that's finally over. He's the district attorney. But just before completing that election, Matt had to run both of them out of the office because Stiltman was out to kill Foggy. Matt was kind of a jerk about it because he can't reveal his secret identity. Both are mad. Foggy feels like Matt abandoned him in his time of need with his election. Now, it's a bit misguided to blame that on being Daredevil, but more on keeping the secret of Daredevil from two people that perhaps more than anybody else deserve to know. So Matt's kind of all angsty and moody, and Colin is selling this mood extremely well. Except that there's this panel on page three of Matt, and I just want to know what happened to his glasses because they look askew. It's like Salvador Dali designed these new pair of glasses. And as Matt is angsting, he's also monologuing to himself, which I know is not a word, but it fits here. As much as I want to roll my eyes at the trope of somebody talking to themselves to the extent that we see in most comic books, for Matt especially, it probably helps. Not only does it help to talk out his feelings, but it's nice to hear his voice since he doesn't have a visual sense of what's around him. So sound is very meaningful, and it probably wouldn't work as much if it was just internal monologue. It also helps that Matt is doing all of this in a big, quiet, very lonely brownstone. Matt's in a lonely place, this brownstone seems huge, just to accentuate that. And then the issue takes a weird turn as Matt is opening a closet and we just see that purple robot peering from within the closet. It's incredibly creepy. It's horror movie creepy, which is appropriate for Colin since he does do Tomb of Dracula down the road. And you know how it goes. You come home, you're ready to unwind, watch a little TV, and a giant freaking robot jumps out of the closet. Now once we get the full page reveal of the robot, who has this big giant collar, this helmet-like top, and a very animalistic, almost gorilla-looking head, the design itself is scary looking, not just from peering from the back of a closet, but frightening. Now I was reading this in The Essential and I've seen some screenshots just to get a sense of color and this robot is really, really purple. So while the base design is scary, the purple just, well, it makes me think of like a purple Power Ranger. If that purple Power Ranger summoned its Zord, it would be this, the Barney Zord, you know, coming along, I love you. All right then, it's morphin' time! But at the same time, we've got this great surprise of this robot jumping at Matt, not Daredevil, Matt, in his own home. And we've got this sci-fi horror thing happening all of a sudden, and it fits this era of Daredevil. Modern view of Daredevil is he's a street hero, urban vigilante, dark, gritty, noir, all of that. He wasn't at this time. He was a standard superhero. And that's not a bad thing. Daredevil is a character of many, many textures. You could do all kinds of stories with him. More so, I just want to make the point that we didn't have a complete template for that urban vigilante thing. Comics were still high fantasy. Even Batman, who started that genre, arguably, by combining pulps with superhero characters, had kind of moved into goofier fare. Bear in mind, the Batman series was already on TV with Adam West and Burt Ward. So to have a sci-fi element to a Daredevil story in the 60s, even the 70s, nah, not an issue. This is one of the things you just learn to roll with. 
especially when the story goes the way this one goes. I mean, the fight is brutal. It's a jarring home invasion, and Colin is more than up to this task, folks. The fight just looks like a beatdown. Matt's not only taken by surprise, he's in a place of safety. He's being invaded. I want to emphasize that. His brownstone was his sanctuary, his place away from the world where he can clear out his thoughts, as we saw last week. He went to the gym, thought things over, and moved on. And now, a villain is here. A villain is in Matt Murdock's apartment attacking Matt Murdock. Not on the streets, fighting Daredevil. And this robot is strong, it's fast, it's imposing. I mean, it crushes a bed. And then Daredevil wraps it in the bedspread. So, robots can smash things, but robots hate linens. So if you're ever attacked by a robot, throw a sheet on it. And I hate to toot this horn over and over again, but it's just going to have to happen. Colin just wakes up and pisses excellence on the page. Because as this fight progresses, and it's a probably something that would take place over minutes, no more than five minutes, it's a quick and brutal attack, but you see the strain apparent on Matt's face. Because Matt's, I mean, I just have to say it, Matt's getting his ass kicked. And the reason is, this robot has a plastic body, which is kind of genius. Typically with robots, we think of metal, gears, things of that type. With this plastic, because it absorbs the punch and then snaps back into place. It's flexible. So Matt's punches... They don't do jack or squat. And the robot again, I mean, it's just, you can tell this thing is powerful. And there's a register on his chest, like Iron Man or the Vision, which is kind of common with Marvel tech when you think about it. The chest usually has something to do with that tech nature of a character. And I wanted to call foul, however, I always forget Colin had a notable run on Iron Man. Of course, he's going to draw design ideas from that. Iron Man is kind of the beginning of Marvel tech, even though Kirby would create Kirby tech, which would more accurately define Marvel. And then, I mean, this happens so fast. We are eight pages in, and we see Daredevil knocked out and getting carried away by the robot to his master. And let me spoil who the master is. It's actually Charles Nelson Riley. I'll blank from my blankety blank. No, it's not. You're going to find out in just a moment. But again, just to summarize, eight pages. Daredevil has quit. He's gotten attacked in his own home. He is now defeated and getting carried off. It's a huge mammoth opening. And if you think it can't get better from here... Well, hedge your bets. Let's jump into part two and we'll see how much better it gets or if it gets worse. As the robot makes his way through the streets of New York with Matt, he is frightened and confused by a blind man and his guide dog. The robot drops Matt and takes off as the blind man, Willie Lincoln, stops to help tend to Matt's wounds. With that, the story flashes back to the confines of state prison. There, mobster Biggie Benson is making a deal with a man named Star Saxon to arrange the death of Daredevil by way of robot. Saxon heads back to his lab to prep his robotic monster for the task and feeds the image and scent of Daredevil into the robot's positronic brain. Saxon powers up the robot and sends it on its way, which is where we found it at the beginning of the issue. Okay, let's pause the story there and talk a little bit more about it. For such a deadly robot, it's kind of easily confused, and perhaps maybe some riddling could help, but it is a good reminder that this is a robot following a program, if you will. And when you think about 60s-era robotic technology, well... It would be ridiculous, realistically, to not expect something like this kind of confusion. I mean, honestly, we think of technology now with solid-state drives and microprocessors. I mean, we carry around phones that have more technology than some rocket flights to the moon. To contrast that, robotic technology of the 60s, well, it would be vacuum tubes, reel-to-reel -reel things. So why would you not expect a robot to get confused when a dog approaches? It's a nice bit of detail, kind of like the detailed 60s fashion on Willie. I'm telling you, Colin is on fire this issue. Willie is rocking a turtleneck and a houndstooth coat. It looks good on him, I'll be honest with you. 
Now, who is Willie Lincoln? Why do I mention him by name? Well, Willie Lincoln is a newer addition to the supporting cast, a tertiary character, if you will. He first appeared in Daredevil number 47, where Daredevil met him while on a USO tour in Vietnam. Yes, Daredevil did USO tours and was quite popular on them. So that urban vigilante thing, no, doesn't fit here. Traditional superhero. Now, Willie, while over in Vietnam, was blinded. And the way he got blinded was he jumped on a grenade that was thrown into his unit. He protected his comrades. It's odd to me, though, that Willie approaches Matt. Matt calls Willie by name, but Willie doesn't recognize it. Matt's voice should be recognized since Matt and Willie spent some time together. Matt helped him out of a frame-up job by none other than Biggie Benson. Now, you could no-prize this as saying it's exposition to introduce the characters, but there would be a better form of dialogue to do that. In fact, Willie saying, it's me, Matt... I'm Willie Lincoln, I'm here to help you, would be much, much better. But you get what you get. I want to mention that, just again on the detail of Colin's art this week, it's incredible. I mean, it really is just a smack in the face. Looking at Willie's dog, the detail on the canine, the mannerisms are just realistic as hell. Especially when it's snarling and barking, it looks amazing. And then the scene shifts to state prison. Weren't we just here? Yep, and I'll be honest with you, we're going back next week. You'll see. Unlike last week, really, it looks more like a prison here because we're seeing the yard. The prison yard, the guards walking, and Andy Dufresne must be tunneling under there as we speak. And I think the idea that we start with this opening salvo of the robot attacking Matt and then flashback, really great idea because it's a really shocking opening. And once our pulse rates are up, then we get a little bit more detail. As I mentioned, Biggie Benson, he's just a generic mobster who actually tried to frame Willie Lincoln way back in Daredevil 47. You know, a whole two issues ago. It didn't work, Daredevil put him in jail, and fended off Benson's enforcers from killing Willie. So Willie's got a chip on his shoulder because Daredevil put him there and Willie Lincoln, oddly enough, would be the reason. But for Benson, it's all about killing Daredevil. And we're not made privy on how Biggie found Star Saxon. But it's easy enough to accept that he did and he's using this guy to try to kill Daredevil. Who's this Star Saxon guy, you ask? Well, Star Saxon is a new villain, and we don't really find out much about his origin until Captain America number 368 some years later. Saxon found a Doombot that was abandoned and kind of reverse engineered it, and then used some insurance money from his mom's accidental, quotation marks, death in a lab to build the robot we see here. Now, Saxon's going to be a thorn in Daredevil's side over the next few issues, but he also goes on to become the second Mr. Fear. Then he kind of dies. He gets better because his consciousness is uploaded to a robot body, and he becomes the villain, the Machine Smith. I like Colin's rendition of Saxon because he gives him an odd, almost anime look. Really, he does. He doesn't come across as completely human, which would be more appropriate for the Machine Smith, but also kind of ties himself into the robots. There's a tinge of robot in him in terms of the way he approaches the world. He's cold, he's merciless, so on and so forth. You get the allegory. And as we go to Saxon's lab, the scenes around him are filled with basically Kirby tech. Except under Colin's pen, that same technology has a more Frankenstein feel. And like Matt, Saxon likes to talk to himself in his lair. When he's not trying to create the 60s equivalent of Tinder, he's plotting out his plans verbally. Yes, he's trying to create the dating network of the future. He's very lonely. And his Cherry 2000 just ain't cutting it, you know what I mean? Although since we're in flashback, we have the robot being worked on in the lab, and it seems to change dimensions between pages 11 and 12 of the story. Which, knowing how the robot operates would make more sense, it just doesn't make sense in the right context. And Colin not only makes Saxon have a great look, he actually merges the expressions of his face with the shadows, creating this, I don't want to say villainous look, but mad scientist look. And then we get to the technology, the scintillator. No, I'm not making that up, it's the scintillator. 
Saxon actually uses chemically treated pictures that have a visual and a scent. He uses the word odoriferous, which I didn't know was an actual word. I thought it was more of a Don King style statement like splendiferous. But you know, whatever works. You're in pseudoscience at this point, so you can make up all kinds of words. So the flashback brings us up to date. We kind of know everything that's going on now from both sides of the equation. That brings us back to the beginning of the story, which fills in the blanks. But we still have that shock and awe of the opening. So, of course, the last question is, does the last part of the story continue the trend of this horror sci-fi vibe? Let's jump in and find out. Back in the present, Willie has bandaged Matt up and tells Matt to thank Daredevil for his help in getting his job back. Matt leaves and thinks about some of the good that he has done as Daredevil, including helping Willie. But there is still a killer robot on the prowl for his head, so Matt returns to the brownstone and waits in the gym for the inevitable return of this robot. True to form, the robot shows up and the fight commences, but this time Daredevil has a lot more room to maneuver. Which means Daredevil gets the upper hand early in the fight thanks to his greased up costume, which makes it hard for the robot to grab him. But fortunes turn as the robot recalibrates and gains the upper hand by using a gym mat to wrap up our hero like a Matt Murdock burrito. As the issue ends, we have Daredevil being squeezed within the mat by the robot's powerful arms. Uh oh, cliffhanger. So jumping back here, as Matt and Willie are talking, Willie's wondering what happened to Matt and he says he ran into the door. Matt's in a basically an abusive relationship with himself is what it is and that's really not something I'm saying out of snark. Kind of mean it. He actually has to make up the kind of excuses you would in that kind of a relationship. I fell down the steps, I missed the curb, so on and so forth. I'm not going to go too far into that, I'm going to explore it another day, but just something to put on the table to think about. And Colin's still producing amazing facial renderings as Matt is being bandaged up. The thing about Willie is, Willie's learning. His sight didn't go all at once, which may account for him not knowing Matt's voice, but it did fade away after that grenade. Which was kind of a sad element to issue 47 that Willie knew it was coming, his time was short with sight, and it went quickly. And Willie mentions he's working for the Urban Corps. And this is a real thing. Urban Corps is a real thing. It was founded in 1966. It's an outreach program, kind of an internship to help the community, which kind of builds Willie to be a man after Matt's own heart. He's out to serve. He's got good intentions. He's protective. Because of that, Willie gives Matt hope. Matt is seeing the fruits of his labor. Maybe he accomplished something because if there was no Daredevil, well, Willie would have had a really, really hard time. So what it ends up being is Willie is the clearance to Matt's George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. If there had been no Daredevil, the guy would never have had a chance. Now, I say that, and it's good, and it's a nice sticking point to keep Daredevil in the game. It's a counter-proposal to what we started the issue with, that Daredevil's caused nothing but trouble. However, I would be remiss if I didn't point out the irony that Matt's finding hope in this, but if Daredevil hadn't helped Willie, there would be no killer robot after him now. So, there's that. And Matt formulates a plan, and it's a doozy. I'm going to stand here in the gym and wait for the robot to attack. Now, here's... Two things from the same note. Looking at the cutaway in a Frank Miller issue of Daredevil of Matt's brownstone and kind of the layout, it points out that the gym is soundproof. It is soundproof. This is important. Last week I mentioned that Daredevil went back to his gym and put on the costume and did some flips, and it didn't occur to me that this gym is soundproof. For the love of Pete, the man can hear everything around him. It must be impossible to get some peace and quiet and just be alone with his thoughts, so it makes sense that he went back to the gym. By the same token, though, in this issue, Daredevil mentions he hears the feet of the robot coming near. If the gym is soundproof, even with Daredevil's senses, how is the man without fear hearing the robot? Now, I would get it if, well, he noticed the robot when it's coming crashing through the wall, which leads us to the second major splash of the robot in this issue, and there's nothing wrong with that. 
but I don't see that Matt would be able to hear it approaching from what I assume to be would be the street. And with all the damage we're seeing in the brownstone in this issue, I really hope Matt's homeowner's insurance covers killer robots. And I know you think I'm making a joke, but I'm not. Don't rule this concept out. In the Marvel Universe, who knows what would attack? Galactus? Fantastic Four could come crashing through your window at any time? Just imagine the window cleaner bills dealing with Spider-Man alone. It could be a thing in the Marvel Universe. But of course, we're back in the second fight, kind of where the issue began. We're sandwiched between two good fights between Daredevil and this robot. This one's a little bit more dynamic. The action whirls, it moves, you see large arcs of movement, you almost feel the wind whooshing by. And Daredevil's mindset is presented well as he takes to the acrobatic rings. Strength isn't really going to cut it because this robot's just too strong. Daredevil's punches aren't doing anything, but he can use speed. He can use the robot against itself. The thing that Daredevil doesn't count on is the robot can change its settings and the register on his chest updates. So he's constantly learning. But the register on the chest is... It, it makes the robot look like a magic eight ball. So you can ask, is Daredevil in trouble? Shake the robot, it comes up saying it is decidedly so. And really, folks, I wish I could do something to show you how great this movement is. The motion lines and the sound effects merging together, it's like an amusement park ride. However, I gotta point out, Daredevil's in a greased-up costume. He's all oiled up. It's like he dipped himself in baby oil. And this would come out of nowhere, however, we do see on page 15, Daredevil's passing a barbershop. So there may be something there like mustache wax. That's right, Daredevil is a dapper Dan man. And of course, the speed's not cutting it, so Daredevil just decides to put all caution to the wind and runs head onto the robot. And the impact is so hard it hurts my head to look at it. Nothing he's doing is phasing this thing. It's just getting cockier and cockier in its big collar, which, you know, I gotta say the collar itself, it works. It's like Dracula or Destro from G.I. Joe. It makes the robot look that much more imposing. And we go from the beginning of the issue where the brownstone feels huge and lonely to this claustrophobic ending of Matt wrapped in a gym mat. Too many mats there. And it's effective enough that it made it hard for me to breathe. I don't do well with claustrophobia, and this one really got to me. Just being trapped, I can't, I can't really talk too much about it. But you get the contrast. And throughout this issue, the one thing that really kept coming back to me, not only is the detail of Colin's art, but the tech. Now, the main staple of Marvel is Kirby tech. The way he drew tech with the ridiculous amount of detail. A coffee maker would take up a gymnasium, for example have many, many components, but you believe it would work. I love Kirby tech, however, Colin's tech is nothing to sneeze about. Again, let's not forget Colin's Iron Man run. So if you ever want to see alternative technology to Kirby tech, this issue would be a fantastic reference, especially the scenes in Saxon's lab, as well as the robot design itself. But let's get down to brass tacks. Let's go to the final verdict. One thing I want to point out is that this is the final Stan Lee Gene Colin issue. Lee will go on to write issue 50, but Colin, well, I'm going to save that for next week. But this issue is a bit of a milestone because of that. This was a great team on Daredevil, but as such, the product is really moody, especially in the black and white of the essential. The colors are just over the top a little bit. And if I haven't said it enough, Colin's detail is astounding. He's going to a point of evolution where his art is something completely beautiful, more so than before. Now, if you were going to give an elevator pitch for this issue, admittedly, the concept itself is goofy. But between the art and Stan's balancing of action and Matt's actual mindset, it actually succeeds. The robot really does prove to be a threat, and he's drawn that way. The general design is great, it's animalistic, almost gorilla-like, and the raw power is just there. It's drawing from the right sources. The only thing working against it is, it's freaking purple. Purple! But the emotional bits were good too. Having Willie Lincoln kind of be an unknowing Clarence to Matt's George Bailey is great, 
and it fills an action-oriented issue with a real human story. Daredevil's got a lot of things he's working through right in the middle of just getting his ass handed to him. I mean, realistically, to be honest with you, everything should work against this issue, but the book actually comes together and rises above and becomes a contender for a really, really good issue. It's a human character piece set against a sci-fi action background, which doesn't immediately sound like Daredevil, but it works marvelously, much to my surprise. It's John Henry blended with It's a Wonderful Life with a dash of the Terminator, stir and you have a satisfying issue. So thankfully, the random number generator came through for us this week. Now next week, we have a cliffhanger here. And the random number generator decided, I guess, that can't stand. So we pick up this cliffhanger next week with the final Stan Lee written issue of Daredevil issue 50, in which Daredevil once again faces his robotic foe. Will Daredevil be able to find a way to defeat Star Saxon's robotic terror? Find out in seven days. Between now and then, though, please visit DaredevilPodcast.com where you can see show postings. You can also find links to subscribe via iTunes, RSS, or Stitcher. There's a handy contact form there to email the show or if you want to do it directly. The email address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. If you're out and about on social media, why not look me up? I'm at facebook.com slash daredevilpodcast and twitter.com slash daveweeder. I hope to see you all there. And I hope to see you all next week. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.